This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me. Welcome to Episode 7 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. The podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Joining me again this week is Mr. Tyler Short. Welcome back, Tyler. It's great to be back. And it's nice to be talking about this particular story, Infinity Gauntlet, the six-issue miniseries. We're not going to look at the tie-ins in this case because it was just the six-issue miniseries that was listed on the countdown. All six issues were written by Jim Starlin. George Perez started off on the pencils with some help by Ron Lim by the end of the series. It was primarily inked by Joe Rubenstein, but there were some assists by Tom Christopher and Bruce Solotoff. And these are six monthly issues, but also oversized. They were coming out 48 pages each back in the day, including ads, about 40 pages of story. Colored by Max Scheel, Ian Lachlan, and Evelyn Stein. Lettered by Jack Morelli. Edited by Craig Anderson. Editor-in-chief was the legendary Tom DeFalco. Cover dates range from July to December 1991, and the release dates ranged from May 25th to October 15th, 1991. And as was already mentioned, this is number seven in the countdown. That went significantly quicker than the Clone Saga one I did with you. A lot quicker. <laughs> yes. Both had the legendary Tom DeFalco, though. Yes. Uh, well, I did notice one thing when, when I was looking up. Yeah, I, I was familiar with the, the artists and writers. But I, I wanted to see if there was like any sort of backstory behind that. And uh, I, I noticed that George Perez left as the penciler about halfway through on issue four, I think it was. And I also read that it was due to emotional duress due to his DC writing. I'm not sure what exactly that involved, but he did continue as the inker on top of the, the penciler you, you said. Yeah, Ron Lim. Yeah. Yeah, at the time, Ron Lim, has he's got a similar enough style to George Perez that it's a fairly smooth transition. And he was the regular penciler on the Silver Surfer title, so he'd already worked out his character designs for the Surfer and Thanos and that, because as we can get into in a minute, some of the events leading up to this took place in other titles. So yeah. things are already happening when this took place. To compare it to the Marvel movie universe, we've already seen that Thanos is taking the gauntlet and he's taking action into his own hands to get these Infinity Gems, the one we saw in Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, the Mind Gem that is currently in possession of the vision. So with the movies, if you jump in on Avengers Infinity War, there's already backstory there, but I'm assuming that they're going for the same sort of thing here, where all you need is a rudimentary familiarity with who the characters are, and you're good to go. You don't need to have read the two issues of Thanos Quest or the two issues of the Silver Surfer that explained exactly how Thanos came back to life and got his hands on these gems. Yeah, that was something I was very impressed with, actually. I read Thanos Quest the first time I read Infinity Gauntlet beforehand, this time I just went right into Infinity Gauntlet and I'd forgotten how he just starts off with the gauntlet. He starts off with the gems and he's, it starts off right with him being God, being all powerful, yet it didn't really need the precursor. It, it was a beginning and end. And I thought they did a really good job of, of just saying, yeah, he's got this. Here's where it starts without you feeling like, oh no, I missed something. It's like, oh, okay. He got these gems. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Let's, Actually, do a quick plot synopsis before we get too much into the details here, because I was tempted to dive into that as well. First issue, as you said, it just opens, Thanos has the gauntlet, and Mephisto is saying, you know, within your grasp rests the infinite. My humble personage bows before your grandeur. 
and he's just calling himself the first acolyte of the god Thanos. Now, Doctor Strange is at home in a Sanctum Sanctorum, planning to have a nice relaxing evening until he hears a crash upstairs, he goes up, and it's the Silver Surfer that's broken through his skylight, and warning about what's coming. And then in the next, well, one page, really, the Surfer recaps the four issues that built up to Thanos getting that gauntlet. We find out you know, in the next couple of pages what the different gems are, the basis of their power, and he's explaining that, yeah, we've got a nihilist in this, it's the end of all that is. From there, we see three people who are, you know, leaving a bar and grill, rather drunk, have a fatal accident, cut back to more exposition of what happened in those issues, building up to Silver Surfer meeting Adam Warlock again, because he's also dead when this starts, but the story needs him to not be dead. Surfer comes back about the things that delayed him on his way back, and, you know, Thanos is doing this whole thing to try and win the love of death, who, in the Marvel Universe, is a tangible female persona. As this is going on, we're also cutting to those three people who were in the fatal car accident, and we find out that there's other souls inhabiting their bodies now. So Thanos is desperate for Death's attention. He builds basically a sky temple to her, showing both of her faces, the human woman with the flesh and the version that's just the skull. He's got his granddaughter Nebula, who is in very rough shape. He's brought her back from the dead as well. I would say that's an understatement. Very rough state, perpetual state between life and death, and she's mangled and and half melted and can't speak and yeah it it was incredible yeah it's not a pleasant way to be no which yeah. is going to be important down the road yeah so from here we cut to the image that i mean it's seared into spider-man's memory and a lot of readers as well the series as you can tell by the dates is you know on the order of about 20 years old and for some of us this is the page that's most memorable Spider-Man swinging through the city, typical night. He gets hit by vertigo, and the spider sense goes off like never before. Uh, he felt it coming to some degree, so he's able to get safe and standard, He or safe and sound. He looks down at Times Square and watches as half the population just vanishes. And this turns out to be a universe-wide epidemic, because death is upset that there are more people living than have ever died. So Thanos has snapped his fingers and killed half of every species in the universe to balance the scales cut from here to avengers mansion and you know captain america watches hawkeye and cersei disappear hawkeye doesn't have good luck with these big events does he no he really doesn't again cut to you know the shield helicarrier and nick fury's there with the countess and it's pretty bad the hulk knows that it's not just rick so rick has died wong disappears in the sanctum sanctorum mentor disappears on jupiter so and what I had a quick question for you. Looking back on it, was Wong the only one we literally saw disappear slowly in front of our eyes? He seems, yeah, he's the only one that took two panels. The others disappeared in one. They were just gone. Yeah, but we saw Cersei and Hawkeye in sort of the half-faded panels as well. Okay, okay. And, yeah, we cut from there to the uh, the guys who had been dead and are inhabiting new bodies. Long-time readers would see this as a major hint for who they are in case they hadn't already put the pieces together. One of these three is in a cocoon. Now, those who've listened to Al Sedano's podcast, the Resurrections and Adam Warlock on Thanos podcast, which I'm sure will also be eventually getting around to covering this story, you will know that this is the sign that Warlock is dead and coming back. So, I actually had a hard time following. I wasn't aware. I, I felt like there were extra pages in, in that first issue of just some other random comic that I accidentally got spliced in there. I, I didn't understand why we were following these three people and they died. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's it's going to show what like something about death 
but then they they come back and and then I'm like okay well, something about like people not being able to die and then and then they're talking about like these new bodies and I just I I love Adam Warlock and I've I've read bits and pieces here and there but I just I had no idea what was happening and I, even by the end of it I still didn't really catch that connection. Yeah, when this first came out to jump ahead a little bit to personal stories. This is one of the events where I was buying it by the issue as it came out when I was in junior high. This is my first exposure to Adam Warlock. I didn't have a clue until the next issue either. Okay. And I only figured that out because one of the characters, we see a more gradual shift into Pip the Trolls. Then I could figure out, okay, two men and a woman. This is Warlock, Pip, and Gamora. Yeah. But it was my first exposure to all three of those guys. So issue two starts off with primarily the Avengers dealing with the aftermath of this. You know, planes where the pilot and co-pilot die. And other such situations. Quasar, Wendell Elvis Vaughn gets summoned by Epoch. The Krees and the Skrulls are both preparing for war because they both assume that it's the other species that's responsible for wiping out half their population because with their history, that's a natural assumption. Yeah, and they both said almost the exact same thing of it could only be the other race. That's the only thing that makes sense. And they're just instantly ready for war. It, the Krees, this must be the Skrulls. Let's go get the Skrulls. The Skrulls. It must be the Cree. Let's go get the Cree. And I thought that was, it made sense, but it was also very symmetrical at the same time. It was, it was interesting. Yeah, it shows that these two warring races are not all that different at the in the heart, in the core. Yeah. Doctor Strange is contacted by Adam Warlock, who bears his soul to Strange and vice versa, so that they each know each other to the core, and Doctor Strange understands why Adam Warlock needs to lead the fight against Thanos. And it's up to Strange to put together the team of defenders that's going to work on it. Now, Dr. Doom basically volunteers to be a part of it for reasons that are not going to be a big shock for anyone who read the original Secret Wars or listened to that podcast. You know, back on Titan, Star Fox, a.k.a. Eros, disappears. He's been basically abducted by Thanos, who quickly seals his mouth to cripple him from using his abilities. So he's just there as an observer. Interesting that he didn't immediately do that, I thought. He came, and then he... He started trying to use his powers to persuade him into doing whatever. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to let you use your powers on me and remove his mouth. Rather than just let him show up without his mouth or to just simply be immune to his powers. But regardless, it was a, it was a nice effect. It was, it was powerful to watch somebody get their mouth just completely removed. Yeah, it's, I, won't, I suspect Thanos would have done that to toy with him. And partly because, as we'll see through this, Thanos tends to set himself up for failure because he, deep down, he knows he doesn't deserve this much power. Oh, yeah. So it could have been that, or it could have just been, at this point, he likes just basically screwing with him and giving him yeah. that false sense of security and that false sense of hope before he wipes him out. Very true. Uh, from there, cut back to Earth, where Captain America is running through the list of missing heroes, which includes the entire Fantastic Four, most of the New Warriors. So of the active New Warriors at this point, only Nova actually makes the team. A fair amount of X-Men are missing, Daredevil's missing, most of X-Factor. Actually, yeah, everyone but Cyclops from X-Factor is gone. So when it's half the population, it really is half the population. It's even half of the active characters in all the books. Interestingly enough, if, if you're familiar with Thanos' family tree, Hercules among the missing is actually Thanos' cousin, which I thought was interesting just to, to talk about all the people missing. Well, I guess I don't, I, don't, I don't think it was established by this point, but Hercules being one of the just several... And, and the pictures that Captain America was talking about were missed, were had disappeared, and just one of several. And I'm like, oh, but he's actually literally related to Thanos. Like I feel like that should have been a slightly larger thing. But I guess it's, it's 
they made a point by not making a larger thing. Like everybody, half of the entire universe population just disappeared. Not one person is special. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it's almost random, although, you know, team leaders seem to fare better than others, at least for the major teams. Yeah. You know, Night Thrasher's out, but at this point in continuity, I don't remember if Night Thrasher was still leading the New Warriors or if that had been passed on to Namorita yet. And leaders being left alive could very easily fall into that whole Thanos trying to self-sabotage at the same time, leaving that many heroes alive, those specific heroes alive. Yeah. I mean, that could be why, sure, Night Thrasher and Mr. Fantastic and Guardian and Vindicator, those guys disappear. But, you know, who survives? Captain America, Cyclops, right? Yeah. Most of the, the gods of the Marvel Universe have survived. So there's a meeting between Odin and the rest of the, the Pantheon. So we've got Manitou, Svarog, an Aztec deity I'm not going to pretend I could pronounce, <laughs> Zeus, Osiris. You know, they're all there, although they are soon to be cut off and stranded in an alternate realm, so they can't directly impact it. All Earth-based gods, though. I yeah. thought that was interesting. It's a meeting of gods. They're all based off of American, not American, but modern world deities just from the past 2,000 years. Osiris of Egypt might be being the oldest, um, an Aztec one, and then I guess Thor or Odin, but, but all within the modern world, relatively speaking. Yeah, and that could just be the editorial and writer's bias because those are the ones that had already been established in Marvel continuity. Yeah. You know, by the time we get to Secret Invasion, the Incredible Hercules title actually addresses this pantheon with a little more variety. In this case, the gods of Earth are saying, okay, the scroll god is not moving in in our territory. Okay. And they pool together to go after them. Interesting. From here, we cut back to the hotel where one of the three people who survived and has the new body, we see now he's turning into Pip in stages. Dr. Doom shows up and vies for leadership until Adam Warlock steps in with Pip at the Sanctum Sanctorum and claims leadership. Back in the Space Temple, Thanos is toying with Eros and Nebula. So he's just kind of having fun and getting used to this godly power and getting more and more accustomed to it while the Earthbound heroes are arguing over who should be leading. And Galactus starts to get involved because planets he's planning to feast on are gone. Cloak is having issues because Dagger is amongst the missing and he just doesn't know how he's going to cope. And we've got other feedback with Iron Man and the West Coast Avengers. And it's just generally speaking... We're just seeing devastation and devastation all the way through. A powerful wave has hit the Earth. It actually destroys a Trump hotel on the coast, which is kind of interesting considering how public Donald Trump has been now, you know, in the recent history, let alone 20 years ago when this was written. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting little thing as well. Yeah, but from there, everyone's just pulling together and making preparations for war. And this is where it's really starting to build. So issue three starts off with. You know, Thanos is still toying with people. S.H.I.E.L.D. scientists have realized that the impact of this wave that caused all the devastation of Earth has actually derailed it from its orbit, so it's slowly spiraling away from the sun. Other heroes like Black Widow, Spider-Man, Iron Man, they're still trying to save lives on Earth. I thought I'd mention, on, on top of just half the universe's population missing, Thanos let out a, a blast that was like a concussive force that, that went to the universe, and that being what, what caused the earthquake and, and the... Earth leaving its orbit. Yeah. yeah. We go from there to the call for support. So, you know, Black Widow comes, Iron Man. And that's really Doctor Strange has opened a portal. So any hero who wants to come can come through. We get Iron Man, we get Spider-Man, Wolverine, Drax, Fire Lord, Nova, Submariner, Cloak, 
Cyclops, Scarlet Witch. Uh, the Hulk agrees to join. This is the Professor Hulk stage. So it's after Hulk 337 when they're all merged into a new personality with Banner's intelligence and Hulk's body. And, you know, he's willing to come along now that the Avengers have said, yeah, you reformed. So, you know, we can talk Avengers membership again. And that's enough for him at this point. Doom vies for leadership again. And everyone says Warlock is in charge until Warlock leaves and says, I'm leaving Cap in charge. So we go from there as we can go through as the various heroes are trying to give each other pep talks and prepare for it while Warlock and Silver Surfer meet with the cosmic entities. So Eternity, Watcher, Kronos, Living Tribunal, Celestials, Galactus, Order and Chaos, The Stranger, and Love and Hate. Whereas Eternity is there to say, hey, Thanos has usurped me. We need to work together in my defense. The Living Tribunal, who is more powerful than Eternity in a lot of ways, says, you know what? This is just evolution. Yeah, that was shocking. After reading so many cosmic stories throughout the years, the Beyonder, or I'm sorry, the Secret Wars, and then I just got done reading The End, which was a very, very, very similar storyline to Infinity Gauntlet. And same thing, Thanos gets his power, all these great cosmic abstract beings get together. And I I think I remember Living Tribunal almost always being a part of it, an active member. But this one time, he says, no, I, I'm not going to get involved. This is natural selection. Eternity, if you lose this battle, well, then that just means that Thanos is better than you. I'm going to stay out of this. And he walks out while all these other cosmic entities stay. Yeah, they do stay. And they come up with a plan of attack. And again, there's some dispute over leadership, but the majority of them side with Warlock as well. Meanwhile, back on Earth, there's a little bit of dissent. When Warlock returns, he talks to Hulk and Wolverine, who people are afraid are going to start fighting each other on the roof because of the amount of times they've fought. But now they, they understand each other well enough to know what's going on. And Warlock comes to them basically saying, you know, odds are good that in order to win this, we're not just going to defeat Thanos. We're going to have to kill him. And I'm having this conversation with you two because I know you guys are willing to take that step. And basically teams get put together. Doctor Strange casts a spell so that they can breathe in the vacuum of space for up to an hour. And they open a portal to take the fight to Thanos, who's ready because, sadly, the Watcher showed up first to watch because he knew it was coming, which is enough that Thanos knew, hey, these guys are just around the corner. Not that he should need them at this point. But the nice thing about that is that well, it actually comes in the start of issue four when these heroes are attacking. Thanos just freezes them all in that moment in time, but leaves himself and his allies, including the perfect woman Taraxia that he created to make death jealous. They're all there. And nicely, it's actually Mephisto that turns things around. He's the one that says, you know, instead of just snapping your fingers and killing them, specifically says, my lord Thanos, stay thy hand. And the unseemly interruption may just be opportunity disguised. You have power without limit, yet still you fail to win Mistress Death's heart. These buffoons may prove useful in changing that situation. And how so? Courage, my liege. All female hearts, even when as cold as death's, are warmed by the sight of raw courage. Courage such as exhibited in battle. So he manages, eventually, to talk Thanos into not just fighting them, but actually making it possible that he could die, and keeping his power but cutting off access to all the other gems so that he wouldn't know what their next move is, and that would give them a slim chance to survive. And Starfox is going, well, that was subtle, but the devil just saved the lives of Earth's heroes and engineered Thanos' possible defeat. So he's trying to figure out what game Mephisto's up to, but Mephisto has arranged it so these guys have a chance. Mephisto's no. role in the story was his best role in anything. It, it was it was phenomenal having this, his, this sidekick, this Igor, almost, this, this person just saying, 
yeah, do this, yeah, do that, yeah, good job, master, basically. But but actually subtly socially engineering the entire situation the way the devil would. This master manipulator manipulated a god into giving Earth, giving the universe a chance of actually surviving, and and in such a subtle Mephistoish way that it was it it gave me chills on the inside just like seeing his his evil grin and and knowing that that evil grin is actually on our side it was really interesting oh yeah and from there he unpauses time lets things roll and we see that he's true to his word he hulk and drax actually get the drop on him and nail him from behind and we could go into details on the fighting but the main thing is the heroes are fighting hard while warlock and silver surfer are being held back at a distance doom goes for the gauntlet but does not succeed in getting it Thanos teleports Thor's hammer away, so Thor fights back ferociously for 60 seconds before he turns back on Eric Masterson. Wolverine actually gets what should be a killing blow. He puts his claws into Thanos' chest, but then Thanos just turns his bones into rubber. Very traumatic, just like with Nebula and Eros. And Thor, whenever he turned into Eric Masterson, he, he was no longer under Doctor Strange's protection. And you see a panel of his eyes wide open and his hands around his throat dying, essentially. Mm. He doesn't have his hammer. He doesn't have a way for to, to, to breathe. And, and it's right after Wolverine, or right before Wolverine, body turned into rubber and, and Cyclops' head put into a cube. And, and you see a panel of him just lying there on the ground with Captain America over his body saying, he's dead, you murdered him, you cold-hearted monster, and in all capital letters and and bold font, yeah. very emotional. All these characters just tragically dying left and right. And for me at that time was was something very powerful. These these characters not just dying, but but tragically dying. And and it, you don't know what the outcome is. You can assume it's the heroes are going to win, but maybe these characters are going to stay dead. They died so dramatically. It wasn't like when Hawkeye died in uh, Avengers. Characters die a lot, but it'll be either very quick or it'll be one character. And this was one character after another, not only dying, but dying in these, these painful ways. It was amazing to read, even though I knew what was going to happen while reading it. It was just seeing Cyclops' dead body with a cube around his head and, and Thor lying on the ground, or Eric Masterson lying on the ground with his hands around his throat and his eyes wide open, and Wolverine's body just in disarray lying on the ground. Very powerful. Yeah, and it's all the way through. I mean, it gets to the point where Captain America is the last man standing. And that's when Silver Surfer makes his move, barreling in at top speed, and we realize this whole plan was to keep Thanos distracted enough for Silver Surfer to take the gauntlet. And that was it. Everyone else was just cannon fodder and pawns. And when that happens, you know, Cap hits Thanos as hard as he can, but Thanos doesn't seem to notice. Appears to kill Cap in one hit, almost not even paying attention, saying, what have I been doing? Must have been out of my mind. They came so close. I nearly lost it all. And then he brings himself back to full power. Just in time for the cosmic entities of, you know, Stranger, Order, Chaos, Kronos, these guys have shown up. And that's what we get throughout issue five. It starts off narrated by the Watcher, and we've had shifting narration all the way through, but these guys are coming in and hitting him with everything, to the point where the Watcher's saying, you know, this fight here might actually destroy the universe because of the amount of power that they need to do. Uh, Mistress Death ends up saving Star Fox and Nebula, which just helps Star Fox understand how much she must hate Thanos. Surfer and Warlock escape. It actually tears open enough reality to open a portal to the negative zone so Annihilus and his hordes start taking over Earth. 
again, a nice, a nice key, a nice touch, like in the very beginning, whenever that blast hit Earth, and, and it's not all cosmic. They also concentrate on the fact that with half the Earth's population missing, airplanes are going down, earthquakes are happening, there's tragedy along with this cosmic battle, and, and they go into that, and they, they help save them. She-Hulk had this powerful scene, and, and then right here with this stuff, is, is it continues with Earth still being under attack, Earth still mm-hmm. mattering, yeah. tragedy among individuals as well as the universe as a whole. Yeah, Earth going into another ice age. This is a snowstorm. Yes, drifting away from the sun. Anyway, the Celestials attack Thanos, and this is another one of those images I've remembered for 20 years. They attack him with planets. They've got an entire line of planets they're hitting him with, and he just destroys them. Kronos sends him going through time, but with the time gem, he pulls himself back. Order and Chaos attack him. It's one after the other, but he manages to take them. Then we see what Mephisto's plan was. He was also trying to take the gauntlet for himself. And when he tries to kill Mephisto, Lady Death saves Mephisto. And that's what stops Thanos. He he was doing it all for Mistress Death, and Mistress Death and Mephisto join the fight against Thanos with everybody else. So he manages to clear his mind by trapping all of them in stasis. And his Supreme and the Watcher realizes, yeah, we've pretty much lost Warlock and Silver Surfer without the same thing. And Eternity shows up for one last bid to keep his place. And Thanos manages to beat him. So he takes on that non-corporeal, half-visible form while his body sits on the temple. And that's ultimately what ends it for him, because the just barely alive, not quite dead Nebula steals the gauntlet from him, restores herself to full power, and you know makes the temple vanish, which leaves Thanos in space, kills the perfect woman he created, because he forgot to do allow her to breathe in the vacuum of space without him, and then he comes to Earth, where the surviving heroes that Doctor Strange saved and the others are forced to join forces with Thanos to go after Nebula. Which they state might be a worse enemy than Thanos. Thanos having at least a a nihilistic view, but but a, a a sane mind to a sense. But but Nebula, after the torture of of this indefinite amount of time, it, it seemed like it was a while of of being in this perpetual state between death and and life and and, and constant pain. She is not going to be thinking clearly, and she is not as powerful as Thanos is. He's not as godly, not as capable of of withholding and wielding the, the power cosmic of of the Thanos or the Infinity Gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly why they decide to take the fight to her immediately. So Thor, Hulk, Drax, the other surviving heroes, attack her, and she pins them with a thought instantly. And then Thanos, Silver Surfer, Doctor Strange, and Warlock show up, but she only sees three of the four. That is the end of issue five. And as we go through issue six, we learn that it's Warlock that she's unable to perceive, which we eventually find out is because of his connection to the Soul Gem. And one of the things they do is talk her into turning the clock back 24 hours before Thanos killed half the population of the universe and created all the other devastation, which is something that may or may not be remembered by all the heroes involved, short-term, long-term, whatsoever. But we see Hawkeye's back, Cersei, Earth is back in orbit. But, you know, Nebula is back into the misshapen wreck that she was, although she corrects herself before Thanos can get the gauntlet from her. But Warlock is able to tap in. The cosmic beings are free and... You know, they manage to defeat Nebula because she just doesn't have the experience to deal with this onslaught this quickly, while Warlock and Silver Surfer are trapped within the Soul Gem. So he manages to get enough influence from her 
he reaches out and takes over the Infinity Gauntlet. He becomes God, but pulls himself eventually out of it. And, yeah. And we see uh, Thanos living a simple farm life without his, his cloak and normal Thanos gaudy attire. A very unusual look for Thanos. Yeah. And this is what leads into the spinoff Warlock and the Infinity Watch, where we find out that Warlock's decision is that people were correct. He is not fit for godhood, and he disseminates the six Infinities gems amongst himself and five others he trusts. And it's a long time before we learn that it's actually Thanos that he's entrusted with the reality gem. Adam Warlock, the, the series ending with Adam Warlock still being god was something I did not remember and was shocked whenever I, I closed that last page. And I was like, so... It's over, and Adam Warlock is still wielding the Infinity Gauntlet. He's just, he's God now, and he's going to weave the universe in, in a manner he sees fit, and that, that's the end of it for now. And it was interesting. I, did, I didn't remember it ending that way. Yeah. But no, it is, it is a good series. And if we want to talk about the significance for, well, decades, really, there was really no such thing as a comic book miniseries from the big two companies, right? You wouldn't publish a title unless you thought it was going to be able to maintain itself indefinitely, right? Your actions, your supermans, you'd have finite story arcs, but, you know, no matter what happened in issue 99, you were planning on issue 100, unless the sales were so poor it got canceled. That was really the only way that publishers plans to take books off the shelf. That changed in the early 80s with Contest of Champions, with Secret Wars, with Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they started planning these mini-series events. After those first few events, DC did a few more, but Marvel really just did the two initially. You're well, there was Contest of Champions and then a couple of Secret Wars, but after that, their major events were spread throughout annuals. So Atlantis Attacks would be 14 parts spread through 14 annuals that year. Versus an actual miniseries. Yeah. Infinity Gauntlet was returned to that miniseries event format. You know, up to this point, we'd had other miniseries too, like the Iceman miniseries, the Storm Magic miniseries, but a lot of those were being used... Not so much for major events. Some of them would tell, like, the magic one was telling a story that didn't really fit in the other X-Books but needed to be told for the, the continuity to make sense. Others, like the Wolverine miniseries, may have been, you know, testing grounds to see if this character can sustain an ongoing. And they're all very character-driven, from what I could tell, or plot-driven yeah. versus a, a major Marvel event. Yeah. Not not huge crossovers. Oh, yeah, a lot of them were designed to focus on one member of a team. Iceman, when he was a defender... You know, Beauty and the Beast was a crossover between Dazzler and Beast when they didn't otherwise fit in their own titles. But the Infinity Gauntlet is the return to the event miniseries. And it was the first of three in this Infinity Cycle that went in three consecutive years. Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War came next, which is what the upcoming Avengers films were named for. And then finally Infinity Crusade, and then years later Infinity Abyss and the Marvel Universe The End miniseries that Tyler's already mentioned. But this brought back Thanos and Adam Warlock in a big way, all the members that Infinity watched, so your Drax, your Pips, Gamora, this is where they came into play. Without this bringing Gamora back, I don't know that she would have had the popularity to be part of the Guardians of the Galaxy and show up in that film. Oh, no, not at all. Infinity Gauntlet started Warlock and the Infinity Watch, which is where Gamora exists at this time. Yeah, it's it was just huge for... You know, basically the, the industry, both from story perspective, where you had this major event with a clear before and after in the comic pages, but it was also huge from the standpoint of publications. This was the proof that, you know, big summer events with multiple tie-ins were a major profit point. You could drive people reading all of your titles to read this miniseries and some of the other crossovers, 
because they felt like it was important. And this is what's going to be driving the next few years, which is particularly true of the Crusade and War miniseries. Because, you know, they didn't necessarily have that, oh, let's turn the clock back 24 hours reset button that a lot of us saw coming in this as soon as we read that first issue going, oh, half the population of the universe is dead. Well, they'll be coming back by the time this is done. Yeah. The only question is how and why. Yeah, the story, but you know going into it, there won't be any, if if at all, a tiny after effect. Yeah, yeah. so this just, this changed the way comics are published and it's pretty much been that way ever since where you've got your major summer event in the tie-ins and that continues to this day with you know house of m civil war secret invasion siege axis the new secret wars it, it's just never really stopped and it, it worked <laughs> and they're doing it the same way with all the crossovers and the tie-ins to yeah. make it feel like no this story is important you cannot ignore it yeah i mean we can get into personal feelings about that about whether or not that's the right way to do it, but regardless, that it's an it's an effective way to do it. They they've been doing it for 20 years, and and yet it, it's it's working. You there's logic behind it. If there's a major story and you want to know what's happening with Spider-Man, well then you can read the the Spider-Man tie into it. Or if you're reading Spider-Man and you're like, oh, okay, so there's this big major event. Well now I have to buy that major event as well. It, it makes you feel like you need to own all of it versus an aspect of it yet you got you got multiple ways to do it yeah you could say what you will about whether or not it's the right artistic decision but it is pretty much crystal clear that it is the right business decision because the number of people who will stop collecting a title that they've been collecting for years because it crosses over with a major event that cost them a few sales there are grossly outnumbered by the number of people who will buy more issues of the event and the crossovers because there's an event and a crossover going through the books that they're already buying. My biggest uh, hang-up on it is, is I feel like you can only do it so often. If, if you're doing several major events per year, like they, they seem to be doing more and more often as of late, at least in Marvel. Or I'd say on both sides, actually. You can do this major summer event that everybody's prepared for and everybody's willing to shell out those few extra dimes for. But, but then when you end that event and go directly into another event, and then directly into another event. I think that's where, financially speaking and industrially speaking, might not actually be the best decision. It, like anything, client demand sort of thing where you can't flood the market with it. You can only do it for so long before people end up realizing, oh, okay, well, it's just another one. Yeah, and that may be true of some of the individual collectors, but the sales numbers are public. Yeah, They're going to keep using this model until it stops making a significant amount of money which is what it still consistently does yeah so that's that's a big part of the impact and the significance this is where the infinity gauntlet started if you've been watching all the marvel movies these are the infinity gems this is where all that began prior to this story the infinity gems were not called the infinity gems they were called the soul gems and they were all the soul gem they were not differentiated into mind power time space reality until this series yeah Right. We didn't even truly grasp the power of the soul gem when it was attached to Adam Warlock's forehead. It just, when Roy Thomas did it, it seemed to be more for a cool character design than anything else. It didn't really start to come into play until Starlin started writing Warlock in the 70s. Wow. I, I just want to mention Starlin. I, I want to say he is my favorite artist and writer of all time. His, his stories, always so epic, and, and not just epic, but epically done well. This was an amazing story. Like I said, I just got done reading uh, Marvel Universe at the end or something similar to that. And uh, 
it was a really good story. And I was like, cool. Yeah, you know, this, this feels like what I remember Infinity Gauntlet being like, but I like this story. And then just a couple of weeks later, I started rereading the Infinity Gauntlet and the the conference between the, the old gods, the Sky Fathers is what they call themselves, and Galactus, we saw his thought bubbles and, and him talking about his feelings on it. And I just realized, like, he he wrote this story and and got every detail right, in my opinion. It's not perfect. It could never, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it, it was done very, very well. And, and I loved reading Marvel Universe the end, but then reading the Infinity Gauntlet right after, I realized it paled in comparison. Infinity Gauntlet is truly a really good story. It It, it is what it is not just because it was epic, but because it was really well done. Jim Starlin is a phenomenal writer, in my opinion. Yeah, there are other events that... I'm not going to get into names, because one of the reasons I chose to do a podcast about the things that made the top 75 list is I want to sort of keep a positive outlook and talk about things that we could say, yeah, this is enjoyable. But there have been events where people have read them, and the general consensus afterwards is that it wasn't worth it. I almost regret having spent money on the event and the crossovers I haven't really seen that attitude in any significant portion of the reading audience for Infinity Gauntlet. If anything, when people are complaining about it 20 years later, is that they're saying, oh, it didn't matter because you got that reset button, all the characters came through, which, okay, it's true. Most of the characters didn't even remember that this took place because of the way that reset button works. But to say it didn't matter is ignoring the impact it had with the, the tie-ins, the follow-up Infinity series. And the entertainment of the story itself, too. It doesn't. Mm-hmm necessarily have to leave an impact like i'm sure you've mentioned several times on your past several podcasts on this countdown is that regardless of the effect it leaves it was entertaining from beginning to end it was a good story it was a well-done story whether it had lasting effects or not oh yeah yeah i mean just look at next wave look at silver Surfer parable yes exactly those are two of the the stories that probably stand out for them the most for me because i hadn't read them until i started putting this podcast together and they were both excellent. I will be going back to them when the podcast is done. And both of them completely outside of continuity. Well, maybe with with Next Wave, with the little hints here and there as to whether or not it was actually canon. But for most part, yeah, completely outside of canon for both of those. Yeah. Yeah, I think Next Wave is one of those ones where you could say it's in continuity, but it didn't sell well enough for anyone to, you know, warrant requiring you to have read that to continue. But anyway. That's beside the point. Like What this is getting down to is that this is an entertaining story that did have an impact. I mean, I remember the impact reading it when it first came out. So, uh, Tyler, when did you first encounter the story? So, like I said in the uh, Spider-Man Clone Saga story, I, I've, I've read a lot of my comics. And uh, in this one way, I, I read comics all throughout growing up. But uh, I just loved comics in theory. And I, I didn't actually read them that much. I I remember all throughout my childhood, I read Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, The Incredible Hulk, and Sonic the Hedgehogs. They were the most colorful covers and the most colorful comics. And I would be like 10 years old, 11 years old, perfectly capable of reading, really interested in the stories, but I would just be so excited about this this, this paper story I have in my hand filled with colorful pictures that I would just fly through it, not read a single speech bubble, and be like, wow, that was a great comic. And then I started reading some when I was a teenager saying, yeah, you know, I'm a comic book reader. I, I, I like these comics. And then Civil War came out, uh, the, the original storyline, and I was like, wow, there's really, really good storylines here. And and this is a massive universe that I would like to take part of. So in 2006-ish, whenever Civil War came out, I 
basically like dedicated myself to to reading the most Marvel I could, and I got a Marvel major event chronology and started reading through it. And this was one of the first ones I read. I read the Infinity Quest or, or Thanos Quest before this, and then I read this, and it was one of the first comics. Once I got back into them, once I actually got into them for the first real time, and uh, it it was a good starting point. The the first I want to say like ten events or stories I read were almost all incredible and and kept the momentum going whenever I got into it. So this, I would say this is probably like number nine or so out of the major events I read, and uh, I was I was very happy and very lucky it showed up where it did because it it keeps that momentum going. And, and I was just like, wow, yet another amazing story. I was probably seventeen or so by the time I read this one, and solidified my love for marvel and comics in general yeah yeah it was actually probably a little bit younger than that when this first came out but yeah like i said i was reading it on the stands as it came i remember i didn't know any way to get the shipping dates this is before even diamond became the only distributor i remember stopping in the comic shop every single day on the way home from school asking if the next issue was out yet oh wow because, yeah, I was looking for those, and the guy sold out of issue five the same day, and it took me about three weeks of going to every convenience store and grocery store and comic book shop we passed to try and find the rest of them. That's, that's, that's the beauty of, of comics at that time. It's the, the hunt, and it's also the the challenge, which it, it's the same type of people that are you willing to go into this? And if you are, you're going to go in head, for, head first, and, it, and it's, it's fun. It's the chase. And it's the battle of I have to find what happens next and, and doing whatever it takes to get there. So that, that was really interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I ended up doing in this one. I had a, a few comments I wrote down while reading the story and a few screenshots I, I noticed or I, I took before. You want to get into deeper meanings if you would be up for going into that. Sure. So the art is something I, I've really taken a long time to, to learn to appreciate. Like I said, I, I got into comics again when I was probably about 14 years old. And it, it took years and years and years for me to even really notice art unless it was really bad. You know, a lot of people say in comics there are certain things that you don't notice unless it's really, really good or really, really bad. Well, for me, art, it was only really, really bad. I didn't notice really, really good art. It was just art. It was just a way of telling a story. The same way an old person might not notice how good the cinematography of a movie is. They it was just a good movie, and that's how I felt about it. But from the very first page, I I really appreciate George Perez's art in this and uh, realize why he's a legend. The framing on that very first page, it's just, you know, the typical black sky background with stars scattered all over and this, this alien, barren-looking world. And it's all one panel, it's all one page, but it's framed. It's broken off into different panels, going from smaller panels to top to larger panels at the bottom and, and I could just tell from this very first page wow this this is going to be framed really well that was the best word that came to mind was just the framing in this it's amazing he's going to know how to storyboard this which is incredibly important oh yeah yeah not only is the line work great on the characters but his layouts are phenomenal for telling the story yeah George Perez is definitely the right artist at least to kick this off because he's one of the few who revels in large casts you know most artists apparently ask for fewer characters so they have less character designs to worry about you know they've got a little more time to draw and focus on the ones that they do want because everyone is someone's favorite character and they don't want to slack off 
Perez is one of the few artists that consistently asks for more. It's, can we get more on this page? Can we get more characters in there? <laughs> he does a good job of it, too. He does a good job of, of handling all of these characters without concentrating on one too much or one too little. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got a great balance. I kind of wish that Speedball had made it through because I would have liked to see George Perez on Speedball, <laughs> but that that's nice. my irrational appreciation of Speedball. Well, I, I have an irrational appreciation for Quasar, which is another note I took, just his appearance in this and his involvement in it and his close attachment to Epoch and his his part in this. He was, he was he wasn't just one of the heroes. Quasar and Epoch had their own little storyline, their own part to it. And and that just made me all giddy on the inside. I was like, Oh my god, it's Quasar. Like, here he is. Oh, he's doing stuff. He's actually part of the story as opposed to just another one of the characters and I was really happy to see and, and followed by the meeting of the Skyfathers and immediately before this I couldn't believe it. I've heard it referenced before, but I actually saw with my own two eyes. Odin, I'll pull up the screenshot I took. I, great Odin, didst witness half my people vanish in the twinkling of an eye. The ceremonial eye patch of sorrow did I immediately don. So he has an eye patch he puts on specifically for being sad. And that's just the type of, I, I don't even know if it's supposed to be humor, but the, but the type of, of comicness that is, that is in comics is what makes them famous, what makes people think that they're childish, but the people who, who love them just say, no, this is what it is. Just love it for what it is. Reading the ceremonial eye patch of sorrow, did I immediately don? I, I just couldn't. I was overwhelmed by the, the grandeur of an eye patch of sadness. Yeah. And then, like I said, Galactus's captioning, the, the fact that they actually went into what he was thinking. I just, it, it was amazing seeing Galactus. I, I don't think they had actual thought bubbles, but but characterizing his thought process and, and the fact that he wasn't just this, this other powerful cosmic deity. He actually had stakes in this and he had feelings about it and he was going to do what he was going to do. And then along with Quasar being a part of this, he had, I want to say my favorite line in the entire comic as well, the Silver Surfer and Adam Warlock show up to Quasar floating out in space trying to figure out, okay, well, I know this big thing is happening. Epoch's telling me that we're about to meet somebody or whatever, and Silver so Surfer comes out with Adam Warlock on his board, and Quasar's reaction is the silver and golden surfers so casually, and they don't even mention it after that that he just assumed you know it's the Silver Surfer and a golden guy riding on the same board. It must be the silver and golden surfers. Uh, and then uh, I also wanted to comment on the fact that that Thanos is an incredibly interesting character, and I I never want to talk down about him because he's he is very powerful, and he is very smart, and he is a very good, round character. But it's, it, it is interesting to see his, his subtleties, his, his self-deprivation, and, and his self-sabotage, and, and his very childlike behavior sometimes. Whenever he created Taraxia, he said the words, she is everything my soul longs for. Taraxia is everything you are not, to, to Lady Death, which was just like the total high school version of like, well... I used to like you, but now I found somebody even better. And, and she's everything you're not. You know, I, I was wrong to ever want anything like you. This childlike behavior of, of, hey, look at me. Hey, I'm doing this for you. Hey, I'm doing this for you. Why aren't you looking at me? Why don't you love me? Fine. I'll make my own lover This is, if this child is a god. And and he did. And he he still kept her aside and he still used her to make him jealous or to make, to make Lady Death jealous or attempted to as well, at, at least. And then 
I want to say my second favorite line in, in all of the comic is while Silver Surfer is, is standing there complaining about how all of his, his friends are dying in front of him and Warlock is telling him, no, stay, stay thy hand. You know, we're, we're waiting for the right moment. He says, I, I know I get, I get you have a plan and I, and I know when you want me to go, but I can't just stand idly by. And then eternity, you see, you know, his half the face that is shown. He says, we grow restless and wish to join the battle. And Warlock says, be gone before Thanos senses your presence. And then says he's just another piece on the game board as far as I'm concerned. The way he just casually dismisses Eternity's face showing up saying, we we want a battle. He says, just be gone. You know, go away. I don't want Thanos to see you. Is The cockiness of, of Warlock is, is what got him through this entire series. Is, is what, you know, confidence is the key to all when it comes to social interactions. When you're confident, people assume you must be right. And that's exactly what happened throughout this entire series. It's Warlock saying, I'm the one who has the plan. And, and people saying, well, you know, what makes you the right person? He says, I am. I am the right person. And, and people saying, oh, okay, basically. Yeah. Isn't that so much? I mean, as you said, Starlin was not just a great writer. He's the right writer for these characters. Exactly. So much of Marvel's entire cosmic universe is in existence because of Starlin. Without Starlin, we wouldn't have most of what we have for these. Yeah. They all, all, all these legendary writers are legendary for a reason. They, like Stan Lee, he created so many characters. The Marvel Universe wouldn't be the same without him. And the same thing for, for Jack Kirby, who established so much, and, and Starlin, who established the way the Marvel Universe works, the way the, the Watcher, the fact that he exists, plays into so many storylines. And the same thing with all these abstract characters in the Marvel Universe, the eternity, love, hate, chaos and and order the fact that they exist have to come into play whenever major events happen and with without all these characters existing and and not only existing but recurring for so long it it lays the groundwork for what to come what has to come tradition you know these guys appeared in these older stories well this one's even grander so these people have to appear again you know you have to keep topping but because you keep going higher and higher with these grand grand storylines you have to keep pulling elements from the back as well. And like you said, they, he, he established so much and he, he's incredible. I, I feel like I, I fanboy over him. Like a, I feel like a teenage girl, you know, with Justin Bieber coming around like, oh, my God, he's incredible. But but he, he has that effect on me. It's these amazing storylines that, that are the reason why I read comics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely one of the best. From there, you might as well get into the portion of the podcast that I have so shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which everyone should be listening to. They're doing great stuff. This is the part where we examine these for any messages, morals, and meanings, and anything deeper than that that we can find in these pages. Now, I didn't find a lot of meanings in this. This seems to be a fairly straightforward story. I mean, there may be a little bit of be careful what you wish for, but that's part of Thanos' character that always has been right from the start. Yeah, be careful what you wish for is definitely a recurring theme throughout this, and, and we're a recurring theme with Thanos on his own. Yeah. So, yeah, this doesn't really seem to be, you know, a message book in that sense. No, I no grand meaning, no no feeling or, or tagline they're trying to get you to, to think about it by the end of it. Yeah. I mean, you can always push those into these situations, but I don't I don't feel like it needs to be done with this. No. No, I don't think so. I think this is one 
you know, it really comes down to just, no, this is a good story. If we look at why it landed on this point in the rankings, we usually look at entertainment value, at the impact it had on continuity and on any messages and morals that we have as a part of it. And it's really just the first two categories that put it here. Yeah. It's, you know, it's entertaining and it's important to continuity in a big way, but that's it. People aren't doing it because they read it and go, you know, I learned something from these characters that changed the way I live my day-to-day life. That's not what we've got here. Well, no, simply seeing Thanos' character flaw that was, that was mentioned several times throughout this, the only way we can win is if Thanos either consciously or subconsciously lets us win, which was something interesting that, that did make me think about myself, you know, do I do that? If I do do it, how often do I do that? But not necessarily a deeper meaning, just uh, something I pulled from the story. Yeah. All right. I guess now on to why we think it landed at this point in the rankings, which we sort of went over with just how epic it was, how how much it established, and, and how entertaining it was. I, I definitely think you said it's number nine, right? It's number seven. Number seven. Wow. Yeah. I, I think it deserves number seven. Definitely in the top 15. It deserves in the top 15 without a doubt. Yeah, and if we start looking at what impact it had on the industry going forward from here, then, yeah, it's not just top 15, it's top 20. Yeah. So, anyway, at this point, so, Tyler, thanks for coming back and joining us again. Uh, It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. Uh, For those of you who are listening along at home, next week we are looking at X-Men Days of Future Past, which was originally in Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142. It has been reprinted in The 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time, Issue 1, Essential X-Men, Volume 2, Greatest Battles of the X-Men, Trade Paperback, Marvel Collectible Classics, X-Men, Number 2, Marvel Masterworks, Uncanny X-Men, Volume 6, The Uncanny X-Men in Days of Future Past, One-Shot, The X-Men, Days of Future Past, Trade Paperback, Geek Corp DVD-ROM, Marvel Digital Limited, and Comixology. So we've got a couple of places you can go to to pick that one up. Please feel free to rate this and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes, on Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can also join our Facebook discussion forum and discuss the stories there. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon. The Comic Book Conversation Show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.